If you'd like to support the show in a way other than just listening, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the flight diary for more information. This episode is brought to you by Double Helix Disc Sports. Double Helix is a growing disc golf retail brand started in 2019 by brothers Mark and Matt. Since I've been working with them personally, it's been so obvious to see how passionate they are about growing the sport as a whole, as well as providing guidance to each and every customer as they progress in their own disc golf journeys. Head to DoubleHelixDiscSports.com for their full selection of equipment, apparel, and their homemade grip solution, the Ringtail Dry Sack. For even more disc golf content and information, find them on Instagram at DoubleHelixDiscSports. This episode of The Flight Diary is brought to you by Wander Disc Golf, a brand that's bred from passion for the sport and all of the beautiful places it can take us. Wander has a wide variety of thoughtful apparel rooted in disc golf and an advocacy for mental health. Find them at at WanderDiscGolf on Instagram and shop at WanderDiscGolf.com. You're listening to The Flight Diary, an intimate collection of stories, theories, and thoughts from the world of professional disc golf. I'm your host, Brian Earhart. As a lot of you know by now, I am a huge fan of Frisbee history, and I believe that understanding how far the flying disc has come can truly make one's connection to the disc sports world even stronger than before. Recently, I was fortunate enough to spend an entire week with a man who's been winning world titles in the flying disc world longer than I've been alive. His name is Joel Rogers. He's an 11-time freestyle world champion and a member of the FPA Hall of Fame. His house was nestled on a beautiful hill overlooking Nashville, Tennessee, and inside of his house was a literal museum of flying disc history. Frisbee pythons, Pluto platters, you name it, it was likely there. His burning passion for the flying disc after all these years was so humbling and inspiring, and I'm happy I got to capture at least a small segment of his story for you during my stay. Enjoy. I want to hear some some sensory memories from growing up in Tennessee, sights, smells, sounds, tastes, you know, things like that, that, that jump out to you growing up in Tennessee. Well, certainly the forest, you know, I was lucky enough to grow up on a river in a beautiful house where I could roll down the hill, jump in the river, swim across, play on big farms. I literally thought I was hooked then. I could go up and down the river. I could hang out. I could fish. I could do anything I want and just live that life of luxury. And then turn around and go up the street and go into the shopping district and go to a bowling alley and go interact. So I had this really wonderful life of, uh, being able to grow up in the woods, but yet still live in the city. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was great for me because we had tons of wildlife and, in our yard and, there, and all around us. But then, you know, I could go hang out with modern people in Nashville. You know, Nashville was a great town and still is, of course. And so sights and smells, for me, it was always camping, backpacking, hiking, uh, swimming. Uh, you know, I have a love for scuba diving now and snorkeling now, but that all came from early Boy Scouts, early days of just playing in the woods. My dad took me camping, took me hiking, took me somewhere, you know, at least once a month, if not three times a month. So we spent time in the Smokies. I spent time on every national battlefield in Tennessee, Chickamauga, Shiloh, you know, all the great. So, you know, had this really wonderful 
life of growing up in mm -hmm. in the woods and and outdoors and eventually that turned into i became a backpacker and we would do all these winter trips and then that branched out to traveling all over the country and you know going through the the western mountains and hiking all over there so yeah i felt really fortunate you know nashville is a great town i had a phenomenal dad who would take me everywhere and then really what one of the things that uh, relates back to frisbee is my dad was a picker he was an early you know, antique guy, and he we would go track down knives, pocket knives, rare antique, you know, things from 1900. He, he eventually built a, a general store in his house. It was a 1905 general store. Really? Cash registers, tobacco plugs, shoes, everything you would find in a general store, and knives. And, and uh, so I was on the road with him. We would go and meet these people in fields and courthouses and all over the country trying to find rare knives. And that really told me what the collecting world in Frisbee was, that the oldest stuff, no matter what, it's still going to be the most valued. You know, if you can find the first, if you can find the early things. So in my Frisbee career, I didn't collect tournament discs. I didn't collect anything they were mass producing and handing to me. I was looking for antiques. I see. So is that how you first got into Frisbee was picking picking for it like no no i first got into frisbee because i was a traditional athlete you know basketball football track you know and and i was i grew up early so i was a large kid in seventh eighth grade the biggest kid <laughs> yeah. in my school the biggest kid in my ninth grade school you know not until i got to high school with somebody even taller than me in my school so that allowed me to be good in football and basketball and you know i just grew up early uh but after high school i realized i wasn't gonna be a college athlete and uh, my well, I always had a Frisbee in my car. I always threw it back and forth. So I worked a job here in Nashville, Opryland. And at night, we get off at 11 o'clock at night. And what do you do in Nashville? If you're underage, you're not going to a club. So we would meet and throw Frisbees in the parking lot. And it was just our thing. You know, I thought we were the Frisbee freaks or the cool kids. I was actually behind that generation of the Frisbee on campus craze, but just slightly. So I carry a Frisbee with me and me and my buddies would just throw it and they were all good talented athletes and then we like well i can hit that stop sign and i can hit that and golf organically happened so i started doing that also in basketball i stunt i spun basketballs on my fingers so the first time i saw a disc hovering down i'm like i bet you can delay that i bet you can spin it you know and i i tried to self teach myself so it was just me looking to fill that void of traditional sports and frisbee rolled right in and uh, I heard they're having a Frisbee tournament in town. Really? You actually have tournaments? You yeah. People gather for this? So I went to the Tennessee States, and, and then Tom Monroe was there, and Grant Posey, and uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, the beginnings of the days. So I saw freestyle really you know, up close and personal and went, yeah, that's me. I love that. That's awesome. I, I want the listeners to know, because you've been – playing frisbee a long time you've been playing with all sorts of flying discs for a long time what was the landscape of the equipment being used back when you were just catching the bug when when i started off uh the generation before me all through pros freestylers were pros guts were pros people but the super pro came in and they loved that that's a whammo a, yeah they're all whammos all whammos so whammo dominated everything back then uh, so it was all whammo. So when I came along and I was learning to delay, they invented the G series, the 141, the 165, the 119. So it had a really nice flat bottom for delaying and top. So the first disc I threw were 40 moles and, and, uh, 141s, uh, 
And, and, and then soon after that, the Wham-O 165 came in. And the 165, Joey discovered, had more weight, more retention. So for our sport, delaying and having that spin, that extra weight. So Joey went from the pro to the 165, moved up in weight. It would delay longer and you could spin huh. it longer. So we were dominated by Wham-O up until 1980. Then 80, Discraft come in. Kenner made the Sky Styler. And I instantly recognized it was the best disc out there, you know, for freestyle. So I instantly switched to a Sky Styler. I also took my Ultimate team, Dave Kessler and I, and started Ultimate at MTSU. And we were all throwing Whammo 165s back then. And for Ultimate? For Ultimate. It was the only disc, Whammo 165s. We are all playing 1980. And here comes this Ultra Star that Discraft had put in my uh -huh. hand because I'm a Discraft guy because it's a Sky Styler. And the first time I threw it, I'm like, oh, man, it's a, it's a much better flyer than a 165. This may be before your time. But back then, if you went to an ultimate event to play a game, if you couldn't agree on the disc, you'd play half and half. I love that. So we would go, and everybody's playing with Whammo. And you're like, all right, we'll play half with Whammo. But you got to play the second half with the Ultra Star. So we literally turned the whole South on to Ultra Stars. No one had ever thrown one. No one had ever seen it. And we were making them throw it. And it wasn't but a year or two later, they were all throwing wow. Ultra Stars. That, that's wild to me. I, I guess I never even thought about, because Discraft's such a mainstay in the world of disc sports now. What was the reaction initially when a new company came into town making discs? Were people stoked about it because Kenner was like, no, knew what he was doing, or what was the initial reaction? All the freestylers, Kenner was a freestyler, you know, originally, and so he built us a better disc. So we all instantly loved that disc. I see. Whammo ran the, you know, the Rutgers and the uh, NAS series originally, but then it evolved into the U.S. Open and so forth. Whammo kind of made you keep playing with Whammo discs. I they see. Wouldn't let you play with. So for a while, we had to switch back to. Whammo 165s and play, you know, in the Whammo tournaments with yeah. their disc. But but pretty quickly we got out of that and went straight to the. And then clearly people were open to the better flying disc in Ultima. And I saw mm -hmm. them, you know, at first they're, you know, resistance, not our disc. Why are you doing this? But when they started throwing with it and realized it was a better flyer and, you know, it worked better, they were they were open to it. They were, we were always open, and me personally, uh -huh. Anything to take, you know, Wemo dominated the market. So if Discraft can come in and just take a part of it, give us something, then we're building competition. And give them a little bit of extra push to maybe exactly. make something better than the Sky Styler. Exactly. Yeah. And stuff. And and also to support tournaments and stuff because Wemo was able to just pick and choose what they wanted to do. There was mm -hmm. no, no competition to sponsor us or something. Yeah. But, but they did. So what was your, I mean, you sounds like you got into Frisbee quick. You got into Frisbee and you just fell in love with it. Tennessee State's. And uh, you got exposed to the world of these incredible players. And I guess the, the world of disc sports was so different than it is now. Like we're moving into the pro sports world now, it kind of seems like with Ultimate and Disc Golf. But there were so many more events and so many more things you could do with a Frisbee back then that were taken more seriously. So originally in 80, you know, it, they would advertise a Frisbee tournament. Like I would go to yeah. it and not even know what events were there. It's like, oh, you're going to have distance and freestyle golf? Okay, you're going to have... You know, we would show up not even knowing what event they would. Have. It was just oh, frisbee so cool. tournament. Just so everybody back then was way more of an overall, overall, or you would throw distance, accuracy, MTA, you know, all the the field events. Uh, you know, ultimate was separate. It was more on colleges mm -hmm. and on school campuses, but at tournaments, it was the seven overall events in That's golf. So cool. And then by the mid eighties, 
golf was gaining so much popularity that it was breaking off and creating its own golf tournaments, mm-hmm. you know. But in the early days, in from 80 to 87, I would travel to Alabama, Tom Monroe's event, that'd be overall, Georgia overall, Charlotte was overall, go to NAS series, and they would have two events. It'd either be freestyle and DDC or distance and golf, but... So you'd pick the ones that had freestyle and then I exactly. would in another event. So in 80, I decided I got to see some players. So I heard about an NAS in Sarasota, Florida. So I asked Kessler, I said, let's drive down there for the weekend. We're in college. Great. 12-hour drive. Get to Sarasota. And Donnie Rhodes is on the scene. John Kirkland's on the scene. The New York people were on the scene. And, and these were world-class jammers, you know. And that was my first real exposure to seeing brilliance of freestyle. And and went uh, that that's me. I love golf. I love all these other events, but freestyle brings joy to me like mm-hmm. no other event can do. What 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 brings that joy? Um, making impossible things. If you get together, you throw it to your partner. He throws it back. All of a sudden, the wind changes, and you got to do something you've never tried before. And you knock it in the way and hit it and kick it and bop it. And all of a sudden, magic happens. Like you couldn't repeat that ever. It just happened. And those magical moments kept bringing me back. And Obviously, I grew up also as an archer. My dad was a, you know, we went to the, the world champ or the U.S. championships in 1965. You know, I'm, I'm five years old, six years old, going to the national championships. So I loved the flight of an arrow. We had arrows flying in my backyard. My dad had a practice target in the range at our house. So arrows were always flying. So literally the first time I saw a Frisbee fly, it was flight and not a ball, you know, when dropping out. And that right there attracted to me. So throwing it was just magical. And then as I become more of a, a, a real Risby player, you know, then catching and freestyle became that magic for me. I we shrank it down. We're not throwing so far, but the flight of the disc is still the magic, mm-hmm. you know, just watching it. So, I mean, you get exposed to this world and, and it's this open frontier, you know, it's all these new things that you're discovering and, <laughs> all these new people that you're meeting. And I, from what I've watched of freestyle and what I've watched of skateboarding, I think I've watched, I've told you this a little bit, but it seems like that innovation, that excitement of innovation in those early days was, was incredible. It, it felt like, and I feel like with freestyle, I just jammed with you and Juliana and my, my jaw about dropped to the floor trying to just keep up with you. Um, what was that whole process like of, of developing little, your skills? I think it's a little unfair now when people watch freestyle and we're so good. You know, it's like almost like people can't relate to it. Or if you throw a disc in golf, no matter how far you throw it, people relate to it. Mm-hmm. But in freestyle, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What, what's all? I can't even understand what you're it's doing. It's complex. Yeah. So the beauty of the early days, 1980. Okay. I'm trying to teach myself how to delay spinning on my finger. We call it. Uh. Well, there's five other guys that are trying to learn that. So, you know, we go off to college and then come back here and it's like, hey, I learned to tip. Hey, I learned to kick. Hey, I learned to chest roll. And every week or every two weeks, we meet back and exchanging those early basic things. But that was still fun. You're, you're constantly growing and growing. And then after you master a few basics, then you actually did, accidentally did something no one else has ever done. And it's like, oh, I just invented a mm-hmm. new move. Now make that work all the time. And so the... Early on, 
we could invent new moves. We could do yeah. new tricks. We could, like, name tricks after it, yourself. Yeah. yeah, it's a little harder to invent a new move today because we've done so many. But they're out there. There's plenty of new moves so to be cool. made. But it was that that experimentation and you know and, and sharing games. It with others. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you start doing freestyle tournaments, which again, it takes something so beautiful and it quantifies it. You know, it's something that seems so qualitative, but then you put yourself in front of a judge and it kind of changes the game a little bit. How, did you enjoy that more so than, than just jamming for fun? How were tournaments for you? Obviously you've played quite a few of them. So, so tournaments uh, is what puts us together. You yeah. know, if I run a tournament, they come, you know, and if they're going to run a tournament, what we want to do is much like musicians, jazz musicians. We want to get together and jam. We want to get together and just play and spontaneously play. So to do that, we got to go to tournaments. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, I got an ego. I want to win. You know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, so uh, taking what we did for fun and then quantifying it in four minutes and building a routine, that was always really fun to me. Uh-huh. And I like comp- competing. I loved, you know, trying to do it. You know, you're under pressure. You got four minutes, no drops. You know, it's it's intense. Mm-hmm. As soon as that's over, now we can really go play. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Now exactly. we're all in town together and let's go put on the music and jam for four hours. And that's what we all live for today. And even back then on some level, there's that double-edged sword of you got you to gotta win. You want to win. You want to be on, you know, you, you want your name on that trophy and everything. But then... If you play long enough, you're lucky enough to get in those positions mm-hmm. and win a few and take that pressure off. For me, I won a couple early in my career. It took that pressure off. So then when I went to tournaments after that, I could be more casual and and that, that allowed my routines to be casual yeah. and better in some way. But also, if I didn't win, I'm going to go play with the best 25 players in the world here in two hours. It didn't and matter. Your, yeah, <laughs> the dream come true anyway. So, so uh, lucky to take the pressure off early and then be able to relax and enjoy the next 20 years I had playing with yeah. people. And that was brilliant. And the Euros came in, you know, people literally in San Diego. I moved from Nashville to San Diego in 87. Playing in Nashville was a challenge. The winds are challenging. The fields are challenging. The temperature is challenging. Indoors. I moved to San Diego and it was just incredible. Beautiful beaches, 76 degrees every day and 30, 40, 50, 60 players at one time we had in San Diego. So that became like the place. And Mm -hmm. so we played and we played three, four, five days a week. But then, you know, Euros would come in or the New Yorkers would come in, Seattle would come in. So not only we play, but we had a guest jammer almost every week, mm-hmm. every month. Sometimes they'd stay for a year. Sometimes they'd stay for a weekend. But that was so fun, just having people on our beach and showing them and learning their tricks and back back and forth. And so then you get into it's a social thing. And yeah. so I've met people like you on the road and like we're doing this weekend of meeting new people and their kindred spirits. And you all love to do the same thing. And we constantly call ourselves like puppy dogs, you know, I want to jam, I want to jam, I want to jam. You know, we're just, we wake up in the morning and start making breakfast, just thinking about getting to the beach to jam. Yeah. Yeah. It it was magical. San Diego was magical moving out there. That allowed me to really expand my freestyle game here. I was learning things and I was, you know, but the pace of learning is, you know, playing here an hour and a half is you wore yourself out. There you could play, you know, an hour, two, three hours and not be worn out because the wind and the heat yeah. the temperatures were better. And, and, you know, I got lucky. I got landed with all the best players in the world for a little while. And we just, we just 
built each other up every day and just was, couldn't wait for a tournament because we felt like we'd go crush everybody. <laughs> and that was fun. Who were the players that you strove to start to rise your game up to when you were like really starting to come up? When I first was playing here in Tennessee, there was really talented players out of, out of Kentucky, Bowling Green, and talented players here in Nashville, but they weren't on that world-class level yet. So it wasn't until I moved to San Diego that I actually jumped in with David Schiller, Dave Murphy, Larry Imperiali. You know, there were just all these guys who were really starting to be serious masters, and uh, Rick Castiglia, uh, Donnie Wallace. So there was original people there like Donnie Wallace, who was a beach jammer, J.J. John Jewell, incredible beach jammer. He's also an incredible golfer, Oak Grove, original Oak Grove Oh, guy. yeah. You know, J.J. was the bomb, and he did everything in the early days. Uh, so you had all these people who lived there that were wind masters, and then us who moved from all over the United States who played kind of a different flat East Coast game a little more. And so there's multiple styles. So, you know, playing indoors, you play one way. Outdoors, you play a little different. So we got to go there, and then you had every style. You had beach indoor the best center players the best everything and so we all were able to share that knowledge amongst us and play you know if if you if if you're only delaying clock you gotta start mastering counter because we're gonna throw you counter mm -hmm. <laughs> you know so it really made that and i tell people to me i look at freestyle as a pyramid you know you got to learn basic tricks to build those building blocks and then you add on the bigger your base is, the more basic tricks you can do, mm -hmm. the higher your pyramid can become. So I'm always teaching people, just like in disc golf, you throw your putter first, learn how to throw the you know, slower disc exactly. before you get the bevel. That's the same with it. Learn how to do basic tricks, basic catches, learn to throw and catch. I mean, mm -hmm. we now recognize that we need to teach throw and catch more. Mm -hmm. You know, like we barely did a little bit. You and Juliana did a little bit yesterday, you know, but we need to do more of that. Definitely. And then work in... And there was a day where the freestylers all did that. Then they started delaying. So they blended. Then we got a group that only learned to delay later. And so they're just ripping off the hardest difficult moves, but they're not quick catching. And yeah. So it'd be nice to go back and do a little more of that. But we do it on the side for fun. And routines, it turns, instead of quick catching, it turns into quick dropping. So you can't afford that on yeah. the scorecard. So we kind of eliminate it out because the scorecard's not favorable for it. And the oh, risk-reward, so you know, thing. So. And it's so fascinating, too, to think about, like, when you were coming up. Because, yeah, you had to have somebody from the East Coast come into your area <sighs> to show you what the East Coast players were doing. You exactly. couldn't just go on YouTube and talk into your remote control and say, East Coast freestyle YouTube. You actually had to have someone come in and show you you know their natural style and i find that just fascinating because you know in disc golf we have kids seven eight nine years old that can throw perfect because they can study all the best players in the world now but back in the day it was if you were a charlotte player you played a lot shorter less extended style if you played out in kansas you know you were spin putting because of the wind but now everybody is seeing that you have to be well-rounded but that's why i say this seems like such a magical time for frisbee um, you had mentioned to me when we were talking this week, and I've, I've had a fantastic week just soaking in all this history and knowledge that you, you have that I previously didn't, but you kept referring to a time when the money dried up in the freestyle world. Are you able to talk about just, just the, the rise of, uh, Frisbee and freestyle in the, the public realm and, and where money came from and what players did back then? 
in 1980s dominated Wemo has 98% of the marketplace, you know, and Frisbee's most of it's at Kmart, you know, it's yeah, selling definitely. to the masses. So they have tons of money and they, you know, Hedrick and Stork wanted to build, you know, sports promotions. So Wemo went out in, in 1976 and started the state tournaments. And I don't know how many of the 50 states they got to actually have a tournament, but quite a few. So we had state tournaments that were pretty established and, they would pick directors, Tom Monroe and uh, David Eiler here and somebody in every town. And so they'd pump money in. And then after the state tournaments, they built the NAS series and they pumped money into that. And so, you know, year after year, Wamo was pumping money. So in 1980, you could be a touring pro in freestyle. You could go from city to city to city and sell a little so plastic cool. and do a little side gig and make some money and get a few sponsors and, and live. By the time I started becoming a master, that Wemo had by 1984, those 20 tournaments are down to two, three, mm-hmm. down to one. In 85, the US Open, that's the only tournament they put money into. So golf was taking off really well. Ultimate was taking off. Field events and freestyle, we didn't really have a core base. We don't really have that organic people want to play it right off the bat. You have to learn to do what we do. And so we kind of started being a little thin on money. So we restructured the FPA and, and tried to bring in more money through uh, membership and more awareness. And we really started, okay, it's no longer some whammo, some he hired a director mm-hmm. to run a tournament. They're going to run it. It's us. There's nobody but all the, grassroots. It's all us. And so like the top players became the top promoters and the top, we had to run the tournaments. We had to get the money. We had to do everything. So we didn't gain, you know, big sponsorships, but every city would do what they would do. But because the love of the game was so strong, the freestylers just stayed exactly. on it and stayed on it. And, and, you know, MTA, you know, field events are kind of standalone. You know, like they have nobody driving them, you know, really DDC a little bit. But freestyle, we were also just determined to keep driving it that we just kept pushing. We reorganized and, and made ourselves more of a, a Nonprofit and tried to do more grassroots outreach. And then 80, 90, somewhere in the late 90s, we, we bloomed in Europe. They went to Europe, Freestyle went to Europe. We had commercials over there. Tommy Leitner went over there. Larry Imperial went over there. They did these commercials and festivals that highlighted Freestyle Frisbee. And so all of a sudden, Germany, Europe, Czechoslovakia, Italy, they were just blooming. We always had players over there. Wemo had always sent teams over there. Wemo sent teams over for years and done tours there and in Japan and Taiwan. But it really didn't have the big grassroots. And when those commercials went out, people saw it. I mean, we got huge groups of freestylers. So there's more freestyle in Europe than there is in America right now. You know, more active players, mm-hmm. more tournaments. Uh, but that was just, you know, like Nike doing that. Nike did a commercial. So sometimes we get lucky. Larry was on ABC, Wide World Sports, and he did the, the famous routine, and lots of people saw that. So you know, our exposure, you know, our numbers sometimes are to our exposure. But we've been hardcore trying to just build the grassroots, run the tournaments. You know, we survived. We survived yeah. the worst part of it. Now we're back up to where we have numbers again, mm-hmm. and we have, you know, we have good players. Well, I just am fascinated, you know, we're just now seeing, you know, the the outside companies start sponsoring disc golf. You know, the tour championship just got multiple, you know, mainstream companies to start pushing money into the game. And um, I just find it so fascinating that back, you know, 70s and 80s, there was a team of freestylers, you said, that were sponsored by Bud Light that yeah. were putting money into their team. And there were 
tournaments that were giving cars away back then. And I, it's interesting to see how it has risen in American culture and then fallen back into like counterculture almost. Mm-hmm. And then back into, you know, mm-hmm. it's starting to come back into American culture. And so wow, because they had not only the Frisbee, but they had the hoop, the Super Bowl. They got so many toys. They got a deep chest. They got exactly. a deep, deep, deep pockets. So they were able to really flood money in there that no one else had, you know, no, Discraft didn't have that kind of money yet and stuff, you know. And so they were able to dump it in there and we were able to take care of that, but it was still us growing. Yeah, Crazy John Brooks and the Bud Light team, he went out and um he was originally from Kansas City, Bud Light. And so somehow he got a deal there for the early tournaments and eventually he wrote a contract where it took him around the world. They did shows in China and Europe and Stevie Ray Vaughan tours and you know, he was on the road with these incredible acts doing warm-up wow. shows for them so there's a lot of that on youtube you can go watch them do uh some crowds in front of sixty thousand people you know cheering them on and craze was incredible on the microphone and incredible with crowds and you know he could work any crowd anywhere doesn't matter how big or small so he he was able to self-promote and make that brilliant so a few of us we're able to snag some sponsors here and there, some local sponsors, some big time, but it was still hard to get anything. No exactly. one related to it, you know, like we only throw with plastic. That's the beauty of our sport. It only takes eight dollars and you can go out and start having Forever. fun yeah. until you break that disc, you mm-hmm. know. So there's not a whole lot of money where, you know, other sports you got so much equipment and so much memorabilia you know, other and- stuff around it you gotta have that those companies help. We're just one a frisbee, you know. It's exactly. Like, so then we try to get shoe sponsors and short sponsors and sunglasses, you know, stuff we can wear or something in public. But it's mostly been the love of the game. I tell people freestyle is like figure skating or gymnastics. You know, there's a lot of people who can go ice skate. A lot of people can go out and you know play hockey. There's not a lot of people that do triple salcals. <laughs> you know? Exactly. So we're always going to be a small niche of a big group. As long as that big group's out there, we're always in demand. Exactly. You know? And so as long as disc golf is doing good, they love us freestylers. As long as the ultimate's doing good, you know, they love freestylers. So as long as any disc sports mm-hmm. is doing well, then we're going to get exactly. pulled along with it. And then when the show starts, they ask us to come up and do it on stage. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you said you've done numerous demos yourself for big groups of people. And Oh, yeah. I've done corporate 500 uh, companies. I've done Apple and... Um, shows i've done exxon shows catalogs you know they've all so we can be the beach jammers we can be your party so they when they have a big corporate and they're like we're having a beach party let's invite these frisbee players from yeah. california to be our beach entertainment so i was able to do a lot of sh- I make more money doing shows than i could you know win in tournaments yeah. and stuff so that was good i did shows for the ija they invited me in time to do their public that's the international juggling association so i i taught myself to juggle to be a better freestyler but then I went and toured with them a little bit and did public shows for them. So they they understand the work. Jugglers do. So they love what we do. They instantly see that it's hard and difficult mm-hmm. and fun and, you know, a form of, of juggling like them. So they they relate to us. So I've done IJAs. I've done the Charger games, the Padre games, you know, soccer games. You know, we uh, we can do a big stadium or a small stadium. We do basketball court yeah. indoors or we can do big stadiums outdoors. Do you enjoy doing the demos and the big shows for people more so than winning winning tournaments? No, I'm a winner. 
Well, to, okay. <laughs> I would have so, so then with that said, I, you <laughs> I like a, exposing people. So that's another level. Yeah. Two different actions. If you're, if you're at a, a big show, you're showing people Frisbee's alive and it's well. If you're at a tournament, everybody knows that. Now you're trying to show off of the other great players. <laughs> well, you've, you've won 11 world championships. And I, before coming here, I did not know that. But when I, <laughs> I did some research on the way here and my jaw dropped and I was like so excited because I, I love all flying discs. But when I've watched you freestyle even now, you know, long after you, you know, have been traveling all over the place, you're in that flow state. Your brain's t- turned off. Time goes away. And you're still hitting these crazy combos that I still, my brain can't wrap around and I, I'm blown away by it. Do you have a particular world title where you felt like you were in the flow state the deepest that sticks out in your memory? Well, 89, uh, we won in Santa Barbara and we being Art of Disc, uh, Dave Schiller and Rick Castiglia. So that was my first win. So that's, you know, that has its own reward to it. But the next year, we did a Cirque du Soleil routine, and we crushed it. You know, we just absolutely crushed it. And, and we did things that were a little different from the times, a little more multi-disc. We had three discs worked in the routine and did this whole timing thing. And, and when we crushed that routine and won, you know, that, that was pretty special. You know, it made me feel, made me feel in the club. Yeah. You know. Do you think that was like your peak as a player at that? At oh, that? not as a player. It was my peak as a performer in tournaments. I was still I a see. neophyte. I was still really just beginning. That was at the beginning of my 20 years in California. Yeah. So I could do, a, we could do four minutes because you can cover up for your, you know, your lack of depth. Uh, we were much more into choreographing and building routines back I there. See. As I got older and older, it's much like music. It's like, um, we're writing a song and you know we're beginning and it's really hard and what are you doing what chord is that then 30 years down the road you're like yeah you just start it and i'll play along you know uh-huh. you don't even need to know anything and so now we can get together and just spontaneously play and and do things really quick i can put a routine together on tuesday and win on sunday i could not do that 27 years ago much run, more focused we would run through our practices 30 40 times you know before we get to a tournament not three <laughs> yikes so by the end of my career i could I could run through it three times and we could hit it on the field. And so that 20 years was the building in my brain. It doesn't necessarily show on the field, Mm -hmm. but you know, we're just masters at the end. Would you call it like, it's similar to, you know, your freestyle partner having that like next level connection. Would you, would you call it similar to DDC in the communication and like that next level understanding of your partner? Or is that a little bit different? It's it's different in DDC. You have calls, you know, so you're making plays. So the disc is coming in and you're making that play. I'm going to tip you catch and throw, you know, I'm going to throw, you know, you're making calls in freestyle. We don't talk to each other. We never, you know, the best I can get out is nice or something in a routine. I don't even want to be verbal. But we do learn those visual clues and mm-hmm. we start reading the disc. And when you're first taking it in, you take it in flat and you're just trying to center it. When you become a master, you just like, it doesn't, doesn't matter, matter what, what angle, angle, what direction, what spin. In the early days, people go, well, what spin you take? You know, I'm a clock, I'm counter. And, and people go, well, what throw you like? I'm like near me. Just, just get it near <laughs> me. I'm good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's the mastery, being able to take it in on any level, any place, any time, and still have multiple plays with it. Still yeah. be able to I create see. a combo off of it. That's awesome. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, it's, it's just talk that you don't hear in disc golf, really. You know, and, but I think it's so important for, for 
disc golfers who are just getting into the game now. COVID brought so many new players into the, the game of disc golf. It's so nice to to grasp where the the destroyer came from. You know that you have a Pluto platter in your house from back in the day, and and it went from that to a twelve speed super sharp disc. And uh, the talk of uh, the the language even of just old frisbee and freestyle, and I think it's so fascinating that you uh, you speak a different language than disc golf. You know, we were lucky in the sense that you know we were inventing it all, so we could exactly. put our own names on it and our own words on. It. That was kind of fun. So naming things, and so we ended up developing our own language, like all sports do. You got mm-hmm. you got to know what a pick and roll is if you're going to do basketball. So we. You had to invent it, and then you had to name it so you could re-reproduce exactly. it. So that's part of it, yeah. So, you know, I'm here for the Music City Open. I did some commentary, tried to play, backed out because of my back, but we're here for golf. You know, we're here for golf this week, and you have gotten back into golf, and you've, I mean, you've probably played golf your whole life, but you said you kind of were away from it for a little bit, and you got back into it. What, what have you noticed in the world of disc golf after all these years of throwing every flying saucer known to mankind, <laughs> what what's the good? What's the bad? What do you what are you seeing in disc golf these days? Well, I think it's all good. First of all, I love it all. Great. Um, Me too. What what is amazing is you know when I started playing, you know you're throwing a hyzer, you're throwing basically one backhand hyzer, you know, and putts and everything was backhand hyzer. And then over your years, you've mastered the sidearm. And now I love the way people talk about the lines and the shots of lines and stuff, you know, flip hyzer and, you know, all the different, you've invented so many new shots, lines Mm. and stuff. I love all that, the grenade, you know, and weird stuff. And, you know, and growing up playing golf, I I threw a lot out of the woods, so I had to learn a little flip out roller, and you know here we're in the woods, so you learn a lot of uh, escapism, I guess it is. Yeah, you know, you're, you're, scramble you're in shots. Ge- scramble shots. Thank you. So I learned a lot of scrambling, and and so now that's really gotten advanced. You know how people can scramble, but mm-hmm. just just how incredibly clean the lines are. How when Paul Macbeth goes out there, you watch him throw, you watch him on a card and even with four other masters with him, his shot dead middle and theirs may be a little closer to the edges, but his is just like Juliana this weekend. Oh my gosh, her lines are so beautiful. You know, they're just like right mm-hmm. there every time. Exactly. If you went out there and placed it, that's where yeah. you put it, you know? So watching how people have mastered that, watching how you can just knock down 60 footer, 70 footer, it's expected to hit a 70 footer, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and like, wow, that's, you know, that's all seriously changed. You've got, you know, Eagle throwing 600 feet. Come on. You know, I was trying to break 300 feet in 1980. I know. You know and I'm still trying to break 300 feet, <laughs> but the, the distance and the power, and of course, you know, the actual numbers you know the fact that we have a pro tour it's amazing I, I love that you know i feel like i'm part of that i brought the first beveled edge disc to tennessee i ran the state tournaments in 83 and i heard about this company champion and and so i'm like yeah i'll order two cases and that was the start of the beveled edge you know put them in bill burns's hands david greenwell's hands tom monroe hands you know none of them had seen it before that weekend so so then that was the whole blast off of a new generation mm-hmm. of plastic beveled edge and you know, the really high speeds. And stuff. What were people starting to do when, when that came about, when you handed these beveled edge discs to these, I mean, longtime players, what was the initial reaction to that? 
they all thought it was pretty cool. We couldn't throw them at first. We had to go. <laughs> so even though I'm handing it to them in a, tur- a tournament, they're like, well, maybe my super puppy is going to work better for me. Uh-huh. But soon, once they threw them a couple weeks, you know. But they, were, I think everybody was pretty excited because you could see the potential of that disc going so much further than the 40 molder of the super puppy. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, What just... was it called? Was that the Eagle? Was that like, and it wasn't the modern Eagle, right? There was a disc that you gave me. I think it was an arrow, but it was called an Eagle. What exactly were you giving them? So somebody's going to have to help me with this because I've gotten, you know, it's been 42 yeah. years now or something. My understanding, the very first ones they had in this, those gold, those gold ones, almost yellow, whatever color it was with the green hot step. They were always, to me, they were all called arrow. Then arrow, the, okay. their next very first one that came out was the eagle right after they changed it a little bit the eagle turned over more the arrow i thought had a beautiful you know stable stable line uh so that kind of was nice because you have one with stable and one you could flip out some people have reversed those words i'm not sure i just know the first ones i got have no writing on them no no embossed on them they're they're blanks completely and and now they're pretty pretty sought after in the collecting world definitely do you have any brand new still I don't have a mint one. No. I don't know. I sold all the ones I have and, and even had mine in my bag for four, five, six years, you know? Mm-hmm. So then once I I realized I looked up one day and I had none of them, so I went back and asked my buddies who were in that tournament that weren't golfers. You still have one of those at your house? So yeah. I, I got a few of them back. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So the one I showed you, I've gotten back from another player and ultimate people who I knew wasn't real golfers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I just... Even when I started playing disc golf, you know, I started playing disc golf when, right when the, uh, I believe the Orc came out, which is right. way oh my gosh. faster oh my gosh. than yes. anything yeah. that yes. you yes. were handing to people back then. But, right. you know, there was that, uh, just the speed race. Once those discs started coming out, it felt like every company at the time, it was Discraft Innova that were the big players, right. but felt like a Coke and Pepsi ordeal. It was like, oh, 10 speed disc, here's our 11 speed disc and here's our 12 speed disc. And it felt like. Are we are we just going to have a disc that has a, a three inch thick rim? Like what's going to happen? But I, I find it fascinating that they finally kind of come to the end of that. They realize, oh, a 14 speed disc is not going to go farther than a 12 speed disc. And sometimes an 11 speed disc can go farther than a 12 speed disc. The professionals are figuring that out and are slowing down on a lot of the, the discs now, which I find really, really cool how the game evolves over the years. Um and I mean, you've seen you've seen the throw of the disc change even more than I've seen the the throwing of the disc change, which is fascinating. I believe it or not, early days I saw people throwing golf overhand wrist flip. You know, I saw them throwing distance overhand wrist. Really, flips in the early days, yeah, people could rip it. You know, I had pretty good overhand wrist flip from freestyle, so I could actually rip it out there pretty good in golf. But yeah, now it all evolved into backhand sidearms, and 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 their sidearms are so incredibly good now. Yeah, it's like. I'm blown away. I remember watching old Ultimate because you played Ultimate a long time. Were a lot of people throwing sidearm like forehand in Ultimate? But yeah, they yeah. were. Okay, always. always. Okay, I was, you had to have both. To, you know, fake around the person. Okay, I was I was watching a like an old Ultimate video and I saw a lot of overhand wrist flip being used and I was like, what are these guys doing? This is incredible. <sighs> but can't you just throw a sidearm? <laughs> but I, I guess like you said, like if it's a throw that people have been doing a long time, you know. And and with the overhand wrist flip, believe it or not, you're further away, so you, you know you can get away from blocks. Oh, I wish really. people still use that, <laughs> but they definitely do not. They're a little bit more disciplined than We've they used to. We've all evolved out of that, except for freestyle. We use it, you know, definitely all the time. It's but a good way to reverse the spin from a backhand. Throw right? a counter if you're right-handed. Right? Exactly. Right. 
Well, Joel, I just, I'm so grateful that you let me into your home and showed me all of your crazy Frisbee collection because I'm, you know, crazy about that kind of stuff and showed me your front yard course that you have. And uh, my time in Nashville has been pretty, pretty wonderful. Um, I mean, I, I guess as we wrap this up, a little quicker than I expected it, but I, I felt like it was extremely valuable conversation, even just for me. For all these people listening, we do have a lot of new disc golfers, um, people that are just figuring out the joy of a flying disc. Do you have any words for those people? Well, the first thing is get a Discraft Sky Style, get a, a, an Apple or a, in, you know a Zephyr or something. Get a disc that you can throw and catch with, and just throw and catch, and you let that be, learn to catch a little bit, learn to just be the old school throw and catch because when I want well ultimate catches but they're not doing trick catches what I've witnessed over you know most recently is golf is going to always be here it's taken off it's bloomed ultimate is is blooming so the combining those of, of catching you know and reminding people freestyle is still here you know we're still doing this so I just want to tell people to go to frisbeeguru.com and check out if you want to learn the little freestyle they teach you how to throw different throws they'll show you how to delay once you get the delay down how to tips and do do rolls and we kick and so you can go unlike us where we didn't have any video I had mm -hmm. to teach myself everything literally everything it took us months to learn stuff i can teach you in a day now exactly know? like Fisby guru will help you learn basics and if you're a golfer and you go you golf all the time you're you're not really throwing to anybody but if you take a regular disc you can throw to somebody and meet them and drag them into your circle and you know for me i've thrown to people just to drag them into my circle what about that group or throw them a frisbee <laughs> yeah let's go talk to them and and so that allows you into people and places so it's a good icebreaker and to be able to you know do some simple basic catches you can learn all the catches on on, on the web and stuff that i know we're going to stick around but i know golf and ultimate are so so advanced it's, it's going to be so great but I just want to drag people back to freestyle because there is a certain amount of joy in throwing, catching, and inventing games and stuff that doesn't happen in golf. I mean, I love golf, but it's my recreation away from frisbee. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so the joy of freestyle and the joy that we get is just phenomenal. So, you know, I want to encourage people to pick up a disc and throw it back and forth, catch it, catch it under your leg, catch it behind your back, go find somebody who's at your level and teach them and both of you can learn together. That's what most of us did. We had other people with us at our same levels that walked us through. So it is freestyle is going to be around. Uh, you know, I'm just personally thrilled at what I've witnessed over the last, you know, since 1976, it's been incredible. Cause I would say I play Frisbee and they're like, Oh, do you have a dog? You know, like exactly. Nothing. And then later on I'd say I play Frisbee and they're like, do you disc golf or play ultimate? Mm -hmm. and, and nowadays you play, they know all the words. They, yeah. Oh, do you, there's a course by my house. You know, it's so exciting that everyone knows who we are now. And, you know, I was a little weird in 1980. You're going to move to California and play Frisbee for a career? What? You know, like people's minds couldn't comprehend that. And now it worked. Yeah. <laughs> the Flight Diary is edited by Nick Soave. Music by Johnny Darge. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you again so much for tuning in. I am currently in Charlotte, North Carolina, getting ready for my final PDGA event as a touring professional player, the USDGC in Rock Hill, South Carolina. I am so excited. There is still more podcasts to come, so I will see you in a couple of weeks.